Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Bookmarked and Dog-Eared, a podcast about writing and creativity. I'm Elise Mullen, and today I'm co-hosting this episode with Perrin Smith. We'll be sitting down with Kenneth R. Rosen, a senior editor at Newsweek and a nonfiction writer. Rosen graduated from SCAD with a BFA in writing in 2015. Previously, he worked at the New York Times. Today, we'll be talking about his new book, Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Centers, and spending some time discussing his creative process. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so we'll be talking a lot about your book, Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. Can you tell us a little bit about what your book is about? It is a chronicling of four children who went through what are known as tough love rehabilitation programs for at-risk teens. It follows them through wilderness therapy to therapeutic boarding schools and then residential treatment centers And then what became of them after those programs, their experiences, and how that led into their adulthood. Um, It's based on several years of reporting and more than 100 interviews with former clients of these programs, the family members, psychologists, therapists, counselors. And I undertook the project in large part because I was one of those troubled teens when I was uh, 16 and 17. Uh, My parents sent me away to uh, three different types of programs, and I spent the better part of a year shuffling between uh, the type of aforementioned programs, trying to figure out my youth and uh, break me of this uh, troubled streak. So the book uh, focuses on uh, on those four characters and, and is bracketed by my own story, but sort of reckons with what is the benefit of these programs, if there are any, and sort of the lasting effects that are felt from them. I'm sure there's a lot of people that aren't even aware these programs exist. So is bringing that into the public eye risky for you or the people involved? And- is there risk involved in bringing to light the reality of what goes on in these camps? I think there's a benefit to having people's stories told when so many are fearful of retaliation or just fearful of putting their names to a sort of traumatic event that they experienced. I've learned over the last few weeks in promoting the book that there are two very distinct camps of people. There are the people who believed that these programs were no more, that they were kaput, that they had all closed many, many years ago and that uh, weren't a thing. And then there was the camp who invariably say, oh, I knew so-and-so who, like, got whisked away in the middle of the night, or I know Johnny who disappeared one day, or Susan who I've never heard from but then ended up, you know, dead many years later. So there's there's a really caustic relationship, I think, for a lot of people with these programs, in large part because they were so formative to... Uh, us as teens and us as young adults, uh, you know, we were all familiar with Scared Straight and all these programs that threatened to send us away to boot camps, right? It was sort of this like mythical idea of uh, punishment that our parents threatened, but never maybe for many people never really followed through with. Um, so I don't know if there's a risk for people uh, to know about it. I, I really do think that the, the outpouring of support that I've received from former clients and, and parents who struggled to figure out the best route for their kids uh, makes the conversation around these programs that much more wholesome and the debate much more stronger. So you mentioned in the introduction to Trouble that you changed some people's names to protect survivors' identities, which I think was a great thing to do, what my opinions were. Um, but was there ever a time that you were afraid readers wouldn't understand that? They might think that this was some way for you to twist the story or fabricate experiences, and what was your experience like writing that? Over the years as a journalist, I've come to reckon with needing to protect the source identities of sources um, 
for their own safety, but also to protect the integrity of the story. I think a lot of people aren't willing to share their narratives um, were it not for some sort of protection. Uh, it wasn't difficult writing it, and I wasn't worried about people's reception because I, I trust in the public's understanding why journalists choose to protect some of their sources, especially in such a um, tough situation like this where we're talking about the, the, the past, the juvenile past of many people that no longer applies in their adulthood. The same reason why juvenile records are often expunged or hidden in court uh, to protect people into their adulthoods, I felt like this should be the same here. But you will note that the two characters, Mike and Mark, are fully named um, in large part because they were uh, or they have a public record of their own, and, and there's nothing there that is not already on the public record beyond my interviews with them. Um, but that was also strategic insofar as me wanting to show readers that there are people who are willing to go on the record, that there are these are truthful stories, because I do feel if the whole book was reliant on uh, anonymous sources or you know pseudonyms, it wouldn't feel as uh, visceral, it wouldn't feel as authentic. Were your own memories of these programs difficult to share or disruptive of your creative process? I think they were my creative process. I, th you know, I think having those a part, being a part of me were, helped imbue the manuscript and the book with a sense of authenticity that probably wouldn't have come from a more removed writer or a removed journalist. I never found it difficult to write about myself. I always found it very relieving and very helpful to my own catharsis, but... Um, the response that I've been getting from the book has been very difficult. It's receiving messages from uh, struggling families, from young young people who have struggled into adulthood, hearing how difficult their lives have become, um, hearing that parents are still struggling, trying to figure out whether these programs are, are, are valid or are good for their children. And so in the service of that, I told my story, and I never felt like the focus should be on me. Um, there seems to be a lot of confusion that the story is about me or that the book's about me. Amazon listed it as a journalist biography, which is sort of disconcerting. But, you know, if it, if it gets people into the story, if my writing and my story serves to tell a broader, more important narrative, then I'm willing to do that. And it doesn't really um, hit home as much. But these, these emails of these other, other struggles and these difficulties are really uh, wrenching. I mean, reading about other people's struggle has been... Um, all in all, much more difficult than the writing of my own story. Um, sort of along with that, you know, did you ever find that you needed to take breaks um, or engage in more lighthearted activities to help with like the mental fatigue that I think comes with writing such serious topics? And, and I think for a lot of your career, you've handled a lot of this. Like you were a war correspondent, and you've done a lot of you know really heavy assignments, is that part of the process for you? Writing has always been the easiest part. I mean, the book I wrote in about nine or ten weeks, uh, all in all. Uh, the reporting took a lot longer, but sitting down to write the first draft was very easy. Um, I don't necessarily take breaks, and I've, and I've used this ethos since I was a student at SCAD, is that writing is a business, that the creative aspects, you know, the artistic, artistic value comes later. You really need to get the words on the page. You really need to just pay the rent. And you really need to fill the fridge with food and groceries. And then worry about maybe the, the more beautiful turn of phrase. Um, so ever since I graduated, I've always been very keen on picking up many assignments, making sure I have a lot of projects in the works, a lot of iron, irons in the fire, solely to serve this idea of 
um, wanting to be a writer full time, you know, wanting to be uh, someone who's publishing frequently, wanting to um, make a living off of this and not, you know, work uh, at a at a restaurant during the day and then write at night, which I did while I was in New York during a fellowship or uh, an internship when I was at SCAD. Um, so it's 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 become more of a habit now for me to just sit down and write. And um, between those projects, though, I try to find time. Like just now, you know, I was sitting in my room, I was watching. Uh, Sons of Anarchy, and I'm like, I ordered like room service, you know, and I'm just, you're the second or third interview of the day, so I'm sitting here uh, trying to eke in a little bit of relaxation, and then I'm on to the next one, and so yeah, you find time for yourself, and I, and I think that's important, but it's not necessarily, you know, like, I need to, I need to back out of this project, because in, in part, it's really good to have that momentum, right, to like seep yourself in that one thing and keep going and really reckon with it. You mentioned it a little bit uh, about personal writing, but is the writing process for these deeply personal stories, whatever they are, cathartic for you in a way that helps like, kind of get these memories out there and kind of process them? Yeah, I think sometimes with the more personal stuff that I've written, which is to say anything that isn't hinged on journalism, it's mostly my recollection. I don't interview people for my past or anything like that, those personal essays. Yeah, as soon as I, I found as soon as I publish them and they're out in the world and people are tweeting about them or I'm receiving emails. I really feel like I moved past whatever it was that I was hung up on at the time, um, whether it be a, the death of a friend or, you know, some sort of battle with substances that I had or, um, you know, just any difficulty in my life. I wrote about um, my mother-in-law dying um, a few years ago for Wired, uh, which published, I think, in November of last year. And it was something I was struggling with mostly through COVID, right? This idea of separation and distance from people you're so close to and not knowing them really the way you, you used to, having had all that sort of room between you before the pandemic. But as soon as it published, I felt like I had overcome this hang up in my marriage or communication distance with my wife. And um, that's always been the case for me. So it, it's it's cathartic, but it's also relieving. You know, it's it's really just a great feeling to... Um, reckon with your emotions, really come to a conclusion, say, this is that, I feel this way, I might change later, but for the moment, I've, I've been able to uh, set it aside and move on. And then, you know, it's sort of like an assignment, then you move on to the next emotion. And, and we're all doing that in our own way, right? We're like figuring out how we feel about one thing, and then we're moving on to another one. So I'm just doing it in a more public forum. To kind of go back to something you said earlier about you know, writing and just getting the words on the page and, and, you know, the time for finding the perfect word comes later. Um, especially as a journalist, does that mean, you know, you have these assignments and you have to get something out there and you have to publish it. Does that make your writing better? Like, just you as a writer, does it make you better at what you're doing to constantly be in that state of, like, I've just got to get it done and get something there and then I can refine it? Does that make the journey from first track to final thing easier to do? I think it's about seat time, y'all. I think it's really about just cranking it out because, yeah, the hardest part is staring at that blank page, right? The hardest part is trying to figure out where to go next or how to start or, so, you know, maybe I'll sit here for 10 minutes and I'm like, ah, well, maybe I'll go walk the dog or, like, maybe I'll just go, you know, drink a milkshake or any number of things to avoid having to do the actual work. When I was at SCAD, I, you know, I must have been, I think it was 18 or 19 when I switched from industrial design to writing and I wanted to write the next great American novel. You know, I wanted to be the novelist of our generation, folks. Tune in because it's going to be me one day, right? And I had a real hard time like coming up with uh, uh, stories and I had a hard time sitting down and writing. 
And I also had a really poor attention span when it came to reading. Like I could hardly get through a novel. It was a really tough time reading short stories. And I said, what's the best way to really keep writing, like have that motivation? And journalism was that natural outlet, right? There's always something to be written about. You have to do it quickly. It's going to appear the next day. There's all this pressure to keep writing. And I was like, all right, so I'll do journalism. Hemingway did journalism. Um, Martha Gellhorn did journalism. They were all like really good, you know, Annie Dillard did journalism. And then they ended up being novelists. So I'm just going to do that. And I focused on writing short stories and then longer stories and then much longer stories. And more and more ideas came to me. And um, it was easier then. You know, my friend who was a screenwriter at at SCAD, um, you know, said, I just have such a hard time, like, writing a story and figuring out what I'm doing. And I said, it's, you got to write every day. They say to write every day to like improve your writing, but it's total crap. The reason you write every day is to have that muscle so that when you like have that idea or you have that inspiration, you like sit down in front of the computer or your pen or whatever you're using, and you just bash it out because you, you already know the mechanics, right? You already know how to get that stuff out, how to get it on a paper, how to make it engaging because you've sat writing crap for the past you know eight months, nine months, um, so that's really all it is. It's an exercise. And without the exercise, you don't really have that same uh, muscle memory. Do you have any advice for people who want to write about personal experiences? I mean, you've mentioned that this book isn't just about your experience, that you know, it's sort of been mislabeled as that. But this does also come from a very personal place. Do you have any advice for people who maybe want to tackle that kind of thing for them that has caused them pain? I think, first and foremost, do it for yourself. Right, you're not writing to be published yet. Ideally, it'll be published, right? But first and foremost, do it for yourself. Sit down, you know, have a good time writing it. Have a good time figuring out where you came from, right? Figure out who you have been to determine who you're gonna be, um, and then worry about the reception. Because I think the biggest fear is judgment, right? Is that bridging from oh, I wrote it, now I have to put it out in the world. And as a as a journalist and as someone who's been working with um, editors ever since I graduated, before I even graduated SCAD, um, you know, there are people here and there are people and, and systems in place to protect you. They, no one's going to let you make a fool of yourself. No one's going to disparage you for writing something that is heartfelt and honest and meaningful. There are people who will guide you through that whole process. There's, writing isn't done in a vacuum where you sit down, you write your, you know, you bleed all over a page and then it's published. That's just not the reality of the industry. You know, you sit down, you write a meaningful story, you share it with people, friends, then the friends give you feedback, then you, you know, pitch it to a publication and you get this really excited editor who really wants to work with you and develop the idea, and then you work through the problem even more, and then it goes out there and you have full confidence in that editor and that process that the final product is going to be this really explosive, really heartfelt, really meaningful thing. Um, so I think just like sitting down in a room and, and knowing that it's not yet at that point of putting yourself out there, right? It's, it, writing is solitary, though it isn't done in a vacuum, right? It's solitary insofar as you put the word down, but then the support network comes in to, to really get you out of that. So, um, you know, and uh, it's just practice. Just if, if you, if you want to do it and it feels good, then do what feels good, y'all. You know, do what feels good. That's the, best, that's the best piece of advice I could say. Don't do anything that doesn't feel good. Whatever leads toward life, go after it. Whatever leads away from life, don't even bother. What was the process like for getting this book published? It's a freaking nightmare. Can I curse on this podcast? I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. Oh, it was a nightmare. It was a total nightmare. Um, you know, I, when I, as soon as I graduated, I published a story, an essay narratively about my being taken to one of these programs in the middle of the night, and I immediately found an agent. They reached out to me, a couple of agents, and I decided on one, and I uh, worked with her for a year, and we sort of worked on a memoir, and the memoir wasn't feeling right, and 
she and I weren't having a, a weren't seeing eye to eye on the project, so I found a different agent. So that's already two and a half, almost three years. And this next agent really felt like what I had was good, and we worked on the memoir some more, reframing it and rewriting it and adding more to it. Sent it around, and it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't genuine. It wasn't feeling right. It wasn't feeling good or or honest or or uh, what it needed to be. Like you really. Being a journalist, you start to feel when a story is not coming together, and this was just not coming together. And I had to take it apart and decided to just report it out the way it, the way it appears now with the four stories bracketed by my own. And I sold that as a proposal, a nonfiction proposal. I don't know if they still offer that class at SCAD, but there was a proposal writing class when I was there. I um, sold it as a nonfiction proposal and uh, found a publisher within a month and then got the contract and wrote it for, you know, those, uh, whatever I said, eight, nine, ten weeks after the reporting for many years, and then uh, I, fi- I filed it, you know, in, in 2019, in mid-2019, and you're talking to me in January 2021, so uh, it's a slow process. <laughs> and, uh, I did a lot of other things in the meanwhile, so, um, you know, people bring up the war correspondence, and I'm like, I, you know, I was I had paying the bills between uh, selling this thing and spending all that money and then uh, needing to publicize it, so... Um, yeah, it's a really long process, and uh, my agent said, you know, I hope you now see that it's a real dedication. You know, this isn't just a, people have this idea of you, you write a book, you publish it, it's all great, it's really quick, and you have this quick fame, but it's a, it's a huge, huge lift, and it takes forever, and so many people are involved, and so many people want to help, and then, then it comes out, you know, you spent all that hard heart and, and labor and, and building this thing and crafting it and then you send it out in the world and then it's not done you know you got to promote it you got to talk about it you got to go out and I'm blessed to be able to talk about my work but boy let me tell you is it uh it's it's a lot of work you know this, this is a full day of work doing all this talking um for someone who'd rather be behind a, a, a pen and a computer screen um so it was a long process and I and I really appreciated SCAD back in the day I had one really good professor uh Beth Concepcion who 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 gave me this who who imbued me with this idea of writing as a business right and and understanding that and SCAD was really good at always monetizing art I mean they sort of do some iffy things there uh, with the students' work but 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 like looking at it as a business is really important and knowing going in that look if you want to do this for life you have to really be entrepreneurial you have to be um, desirous of this like struggle because it it is from day in and day out um, so it was it was a long process it was a nightmare but. Um, it's really rewarding, and it's um, at the end of the day when I go when I go to bed, I feel um, I feel relieved. I feel like I'm I'm you know making a dent in all these dreams that I had back when I was your guys' age. Especially with this book, you know, this is not only something that's important to you, but also something that you experienced. And how did that play a role in your approach to writing this book? You kind of already started talking about it, where you know you had one agent who wanted you to go. You know, more into a memoir, but then you felt really confidently about you know the reporting, and you know what was that process like of not only trying to fight for your vision for what this was, but also trying to figure out the best way for the story to be told. It usually just clicks. You know, when I'm writing a longer magazine story, I'm trying to figure out the the nut graph or trying to figure out what the intention of the story is, and eventually it just clicks it just starts to make sense i get really excited i like jump around i go to my wife I'm like i can't like, wait till you like i found out this idea for this story and i'm gonna frame it like this and the guy's gonna come in and she's gonna be like no you can't do that right and uh, i get really jazzed and that's a feeling that i get um with a lot of my assignments uh it comes usually later in the process so i felt that finally 
when I decided to start reporting it on my first or second interview, I was like, oh man, whatever, everything that everyone is telling me is really phenomenal and it's so important and I think this is the right track. Whereas before, I was in the basement of a Sunnyside Queens apartment with like really bad ventilation and um, not very much enjoying myself. And that, so that didn't feel good, right? What I was saying earlier, whatever feels good, you should follow that. Um, so it clicked for me. Um, you know, and I had a, an advisor who I worked with at Harvard during the writing of the book who said, on good nonfiction is emotional honesty. And I think having my experience and being able to channel that understanding of the emotions of, of these programs, of, of the children in these programs, really helped with the process. You know, going through my old journals while I was at these programs um, and reading those feelings of that teenager abandoned helped me be write an honest, what I felt was an emotionally honest book. Um, and that's, that, that's really tough to do. I mean, there's one thing to be said about objective reporting, but then to be objective and then give a sense of the actual feelings of those people that you're covering is, is really tough to do. So I was grateful for that. Yeah, because you're interviewing people who maybe don't want to open up. Like, these are traumatic experiences. How did you approach that as an interviewer? Was it through the shared experiences? I think oftentimes I was given access because I was, uh, as they say, a survivor of these programs. Um, and I did start interviewing people I knew from those programs initially, right? I said, what's the, what's the path of least resistance? Go to people you know that I'm friends with on Facebook. And then, of course, I went to them and, and asked them, do you know anyone else? And, you know, pulled on the thread and they said, yeah, you should talk to so-and-so. And then this this person went to this program and she went to that program and they went to that program. And, and then I started branching out and those referrals really do help, too. You know, you have a sort of cachet going along with it with people saying, oh, well, you know, uh, they, they told me to come visit you, so... Uh, it must be okay. You must not be someone who's going to jeopardize or endanger my my story. And there's that trust, that the hope that you're not going to um, ruin the story. And I, and I hope I do that most of the time, um, where I'm where I'm accurate enough that people don't think that I'm messing up a story or that I'm trying to be malicious. Um, most journalists, I, I promise you, are not trying to, you know, cause harm. You know, do no harm is 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 a is a saying here. What, based on your perspective, makes for effective nonfiction writing? I think it's that emotional honesty. You know, you have to be true to the scenes and what you're experiencing, what you're seeing, what you're being told, but also the interiority. There's a lot that's going on within a person that isn't necessarily being said. One of my fiction teachers at SCAD had said, the best dialogue is not the dialogue being spoken, it's the dialogue not being spoken, right? It's everything that's happening that's not happening that really tells the story. Um, that really gives you a lot of emotion and a lot of intention and understanding of a character. The, the choices they don't make are as important as the choices they do make. Uh, so I think that balance is important to focus on the negative space in both dialogue and uh, scenes and um, just an interiority of a person. If you can get into it, I mean, sitting in an interview and asking someone to recall how they felt at a time is difficult, but it's even more difficult to say, you know, can you go into that even more? Like, do you feel that today? Do you feel like um, there's some resonance with your daily life now? Did you, were you scared? Were you worried? And if you were, what did you recall when you were scared? Was there a time that you always fall back on when you, when you begin to worry? Do you, is there a certain memory that you always recall as happy, a memory that you always recall as sad, right? Really prodding people is, is difficult, but that's, that's part of nonfiction. You know, you have to just keep going back and hoping that um, 
you'll break that that wall of, 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 of caution. To kind of piggyback off of something that you said there, Intern Hot sounds like a sales pitch for SCAD or SCAD classes. Um, but you mentioned, you know, a couple of your professors and advice they gave you. Um, but was there, you know, experiences or one formative experience at SCAD that really helped not only your writing, but the writing for this book? No, I never took school as important. I think a lot of times when I was in school, teachers and students believed that grades were the end-all, be-all, that you needed to pass your classes and, and do really well. And I think that's super misleading, especially in an art school, especially with a BFA. The most important thing you can do and the best experiences that I had were internships early on, taking a year off and working at newspapers, working in New York media. You know, I graduated with like, a bullshit, bad, I think bullshit's okay for FCC, really bad, um, <laughs> maybe it's not, really bad GPA, and it didn't matter because the New York Times had already hired me before I even finished my degree. I mean, I had to finish the last semester remote from New York City while also working full-time, and I think that speaks volumes because if you have experience, it's going to outweigh any sort, of, any sort of grade point average that you have, which isn't to say that if you go to college and you do very well and you're an honor student, that that's not going to lead to, to, to good things. I mean, surely does. But that experience is invaluable. And I know that every time I've had to show, well, my first job, the times I had to show a bachelor's degree, right? But that was like a formality. They didn't really care what it said, where it was from. They just like, a, it's a, it's like a, not a legal thing, but it's, a, it's an insurance thing. You know, it's a liability thing. You need to make sure that they meet a certain criteria um, so it's at the end of the day, that piece of paper isn't as important as what you've done during your time in school. So districts, you know, working at the student media is so important. It's so it was like the best experience for me. I traveled all over the country with district. You know, I met all these cool people who are now in media and some who aren't in media, some who moved on to like PR or, or other or TV writing and it's it's incredible, um, and I wouldn't have done that if I was just like, oh, I gotta like write my essay for you know so and so's class and make sure it's in by Monday. I mean, it's great, and you should do your schoolwork. Don't get me wrong, but um, you should also follow your 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 passions because the passions what's gonna get you your job, and that's gonna end up being what you're stuck doing for the rest of your life, not you know two D, which is God, what a. 2D drawing, my God, all that stuff was like so brutal. What advice do you have for writers? You, you've really touched on it a lot for this, this, this whole interview, but what advice do you have for writers or you know, SCAD students in general who might want to follow your lead and go into a career in journalism or you know, just a career in, in nonfiction storytelling? I would say get all the opportunities you can now. I mean, you know, the point of college, again, is not necessarily academics, but experience. Fine if you don't want to be a magazine writer. Fine if you don't want to work in radio. But you should take the internship. You should try writing for that magazine because you can make those mistakes now. You can, you can mess up a, an editorial. You can get a fact wrong and have an issue, a correction issued. Or you can, you can you know, get yelled at by someone and realize, you know, I don't want to be a journalist anymore. Or all these great things that you can try. Um, and you should try everything including things that are extracurricular that have nothing to do with academia. You know, you should try everything, all sorts of things. But uh, speaking about your profession, you know, that's, that's the key, right, is, is, is figuring out what you don't want to do as much as figuring out what you do want to do. 
Um, at the end of the day, I said, industrial design is not for me. I don't want to be designing products for, I don't want to be designing things for people that they didn't need, was how I, how I phrased it back then. Um, so really digging deep and, and experiencing everything to be able to say, I don't want to do that, is probably more beneficial to your future than saying, I'm certain I want to do this, because then there's just so much you're missing out on. Hello, everyone. This is Elise again. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rosen and hearing some of his work. I wanted to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Check back again Friday, February 26th for our seventh episode with Brian McGee, Creative Director of Development and Vice News, available on Spotify or at scaddistrict.com. Thanks again.